And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Happy late New Year, everyone. It's the beginning of 2019 and our fourth episode of our fourth season. Bizarre, but that's how we like it. Frank, what do we have tonight for episode 51? This evening, we're shining a tiny light on the bard of the boxcar, the troubadour of the rail, the spinner of tall tales, and outright lies, Utah Phillips. We also have our top 10 hidden jewels of Southern California. Weird places, that is. Not actually gems, but these will be more fun. You'll see. Then, of course, we have another pretentious reading from Scholastic Books and a 70s power record episode from Star Trek and some other stuff. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. Ich habe Schlimmkopfschmerzen und ich fühle mich nicht wohl. Ich habe Magenschmerzen und der Knochen ist verfohl. Ich möchte ein Glas kalte Milch, wo ist das Krankenhaus? Sie müssen im Bett bleiben und wo ist der Federmaus? Ich verstehe nicht alles, was haben Sie gesagt? Ich habe Magenschmerzen und der Knochen ist verfohl. Ich 
that it is January, Frank, which means for no particular reason at all, our discussion this month is centered around our favorite jewels of Southern California. As I said in the intro, they are not so much jewels as oddities of the South, of California that is. So without further ado, here's my number 10. Yeah, what's 10? Number 10 is the Leo Creo State Beach Cave and, and Leo Creo State Beach as a whole. And the reason for that is it, it, they actually call Leo Creo State Beach. I didn't even realize this movie beach because there's so many movies that have been filmed. Oh yeah, on that. yeah. And but in particular, especially in the cave, uh, the cave is a particular greatness. And uh, my family and I used to go uh, camping at Leo Creo State Beach. Uncle Frank and and myself and and all the nephews and nieces uh, went to Leo Creo State Beach Park or campgrounds. And then right across from that is the beach. And then just to the right or to the north is if you walk along the beach you can discover a cave and the cave it's like is, a tunnel because it goes it, all the way through yeah yeah it's when we talk about a cave it's it's a real cave it's not you know when you look at the sea and especially in california there's a lot of like little indents or where yeah. rocks have fallen down and there's like a like almost a half a dome or something people oh look it's a cave this is an actual cave where you can go from one end to the other and they lead to two different places. And even it, depending on the silt sand buildup, could suddenly be like three feet tall and then the next month it's washed out and it's big again. <laughs> yeah, and actually, the funny you said that. The, my buddy said he went last summer and it was completely, yeah, like that three feet oh tall. My so the reason I like it, though, is because, uh, like I said, we went to it when we were little kids. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, I'm watching The Usual Suspects, and Benicio Del Toro's character winds <laughs> up dead in the cave. Yeah. And I looked, and I said, that's Leo Carrillo Cave. And I knew it. And I was so sure that I never checked on it until I actually did the research. And sure enough, boom, Leo Carrillo Cave. Yeah. That's how unique and, and yeah, interesting, distinctive. That, yeah, distinctive that cave it's is. It's like Vasquez Rocks. You yeah. Can't, you can't miss it. You can't. So yeah. uh, the funny thing is, sorry, uh, the funny thing is, though, is that... Uh, they had crazy films like uh, all the films like the Gidget Beach uh, Gidget and Beach Bank and Bingo were, were filmed there. I didn't know that. And uh, with other beaches, right? So they would film everywhere. But that's why it's movie beach. And then this, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima, the Clint Eastwood oh, yeah. film, they actually uh, loaded some uh, black sand and put it on a huge tarp so that it wouldn't intermingle with the regular sand. And so that they, you know, because the Japanese had on Iwo Jima had black sand. Oh, that's so, cool. So, just all kinds of stuff. I know stuff. from here to eternity was right outside. Yeah, right. Yeah. Very cool. But that that is something to go see because like I said, it's that that big tunnel and it's very distinctive and then you can it's very picturesque because if you can go in there when it's, you know, sunset or whatever, you see the cave opening, the beach and the uh, and the horizon. It's, Even it's, the it's, island sometimes look yep. in one direction. Wonderful. Very cool. Well, this is also one at the beach. 
If you have to be walking along the beach at Laguna underneath the cliff, <coughs> you might run into this pick. And it's on Victoria Beach, which is part of Laguna Beach. And you can only visit this one on, on low tide. You'll be going along, and suddenly you'll see this storybook tower right out of the Middle Ages. It comes out of the jagged rocks, and it's connected to the cliff side, and it rises up 60 feet to the top of its little conical roof. And you expect Rapunzel to stick her head out of the thing. It's fantastic. This is Pirate's Tower. It was built in 1926, and it was at the direction of William Brown. He was a senator. Um, from California, and he was an avid painter. He was an arty guy, and this tower is great because it it has it has a storybook quality because it kind of leans in like a Disneyland thing and has off windows and stuff. So it's cool. It has some gesture to the thing, and um, the tower is actually a covered staircase. He had it so you could go from his house and down to the beach, but on high tide you can't get out the door, and eventually. It just was locked, and, and nobody really used the door after that. And I think it's <laughs> rusted shut now. But eventually William Brown decided to sell, and he sold the house to this retired sea captain. And this is where it gets the name, because this old sea captain was a character, and he would dress around a lot in pirate costume. And he'd be looking out the windows and waving. And he used to hire, I mean hide, coins and candy at the bottom so kids could find treasure at the bottom so uh that's very fascinating and it's cool it's it's weird i think there's some points you can see it from the road i'm not sure but when you get close you can if you want to visit it you go you park right along pch in laguna beach um i think the closest cross street is what is that nye's place and you, they have meters there, and you pay $1.50 an hour or whatever. And then you, you go up a little ways from that, and you'll run into Victoria Drive, and you take that southwest down until it runs into Sunset Terrace. And that's where the stairs are that goes down to the beach. And don't be surprised if you don't see it right away. You go to the right, and you have to go around the cliff bend and the rocks, and there's the tower standing up. It's very cool, and it's, it's worth seeing. So anyway, that is number nine. James, what's number eight? Number eight for me is the Borrego Springs uh, sculptures. And, oh, those uh, are cool. And they're all these... Uh, In fact, we went there. Metal. Road yeah, yeah, yeah. These uh, sculptures made out of metal, and they're welded together in sort of a fabric design, almost like quilted together, but obviously metal, and then three-dimensional. So they have, if you can picture it, they have uh, squares of metals, uh, that that are you know fashioned into shapes and then uh, and then uh, soldered or welded together right and they have all kinds of shapes and and they're really good they're really distinct they're yeah, not they're, they're not just abstract they're actually yeah they're actually animals and 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 the like so there's 130 of them and um, they, it's actually in Gaeto, Gaeta, or Galata Meadows Estates that it's a, a well part of it that's where it started. So as he, a, as a, a real estate promo. Yeah. So the guy, the guy's name who owned it was Dennis Avery, and and he commissioned the artist, which is Ricardo uh, Brasita, to do these sculptures. The family ended up putting the 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 land into a, like a preserve, so anybody can just go to them and then walk right yeah, up to them. Yeah, his housing track really didn't take. Off. Yeah. Right. And it's funny because there are some houses there, and and so you can yeah, you but, can see it kind of makes the weird weirdness of it because there's. There are houses in like Pueblo shapes and like 
weird, you know, here or there. regular stuff. Yeah, just randomly. But then so are the the sculptures. So I, it doesn't. When you're driving to them, it doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or reason. Now you have a a little pamphlet that you can get when you go to Borrego Springs. They'll they'll give you maps to each location of the of the sculptures, but it's not. You know, there's no like say because it's a you know an estate or you know some some housing tracks. There's no like entrance or any kind of a thing like that to no. to denote where it would even be. So it was it's pretty massive because they're all over the place and they're into the rest of the town too. Eventually, yeah. So anyways, they have huge sculptures and they're taller than us. And one's a scorpion versus a grasshopper. They're yes. fighting each other. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you're supposed to climb on them, but I see you know kids climb on them. Yeah, and all kinds of them. You, so. There's nobody out there, and there's a 350 foot long sea serpent, which is super impressive. That is cool. And it you know it goes in and out of the ground as if the, as if that de- was water. the desert was yeah. water and right? under the road and comes yeah up the yeah, other yeah. Side. it goes under the road and comes up the other side, so you can basically drive through the middle of it and then park and then explore. And the thing's super big. Um, they have a mammoth. They have, yeah. they have two horses bucking. They have two rams about to ram themselves. So it's, there's a lot of uh, fluidity and motion in that sculpture. Yeah, it looks exactly really like cool. it's gonna gonna do it. They have a jeep, an army jeep out there for no reason. Yeah, they have, I don't know. they have some tortoises and some armadillos and just you know those those are the big ones. But there's a lot of them, and I, I would definitely dinosaurs recommend. Dinosaurs, yeah. There's there's a couple of dinosaurs, and just you know, life size or bigger. And mostly bigger. Yeah. But uh, just kind of amazing to go see because, uh, you know, it's another thing. Somebody's, <laughs> somebody's gets a hairbrand idea and uh, it turns into something more than it should be. Let's that's put right. it that way. Folk art at its best. So that's the, uh, the sculptures at Borrego Springs. Okay, well, here's the next one. This one's in Cambria. That's a little town up the coast highway. It's just up the road from Morro Bay and it's not too far from the Elephant Seal Beach and the Hearst Castle. And there's cool stuff to do there. Uh, there's a toy soldier factory and a bunch of other restaurants and things. But my favorite thing is our number seven, and that's Nitwit Ridge. And this ridge is California landmark number 939. It actually has a fossil <laughs> plaque on the front of this thing, which a lot of people consider an eyesore. It's this house that was begun in 1928 and it was never completely finished. The place rambles along this hillside and into the hill and has three stories, has covered decks, and the bottom is a lot of art stonework. And uh, there is cement and rock steps that lead up to the place. And in among this, lining it, is these abalone shells. And there seems to be abalone shells everywhere. Uh, and there's beer cans in the rock work, and toilet seats worked in here and there. And some of the toilet seats are sitting on the wall. You lift them up, and there's pictures inside. <laughs> it's one of Will Rogers. There's different people. And, uh, well, this eclectic house, it was built uh, solely by Harold Beale. And this guy was born in 1896, and he started working on the place when he bought the property in 1928. And he dug with pick and shovel, which, which he calls idiot sticks, in, first remove earth so it would go into the hill behind it. And he was the town so garbage man. Did he fortify man. it at all? Or? Well, it's surprisingly strong. At first last sight, you go, this is... Not good. But, well, I'll explain. He used a lot of junk. In fact, some of the building materials he had, he had the pillars that support the place are these tire rims that are stacked up. But in the center, it is has rebar and metal bar and then cement. Yeah. 
and um, and they've held up even through earthquakes. And he has a chimney for his fireplace. It's made out of paint buckets that go up, and all different kinds of tile is used for um, you know decor and decorations. And he has hundreds of magazine pictures that are decoupaged on the wall for wallpaper. Oh, that's cool. And all sorts of things are worked into the place. There's deer antlers and bits of toys and pottery and shells and all sorts of stuff. And then there's some architectural elements that are claimed to be from Hearst Castle. They look like they might be. Who knows? Because supposedly he worked on some revamping of the place. Yeah, because Hearst Castle's in Cambria. So. Yeah, well, it's right out of yeah. San Simeon, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. The handrails that go up the stairs, there are these pipes. And when the man was alive... Water was pumped through him to take it upstairs <laughs> to the place. He had this waterfall made out of two sinks with a um, tub at the end of it. And there was a bathroom with two toilets, supposed to be him and hers toilet. Uh, but obviously he never got um, any uh, licensing or anything for this place. But nevertheless... It was hooked up to electricity and gas, and it, and he was hooked up to the city sewer to, with the place. Over the ye- years, of course, he had a lot of detractors, his neighbors and stuff that hated it. Um, and they used to call him Captain Nitwit in the in Nitwit Ridge. That, but his friends would call him Der Tinkerpah because he was always tinkering around with stuff. It's a fancy area. Let's just put it, it this way. The houses near him aren't so fancy, yeah. but they're fancier than his junk yeah. house. Um, even after his death, you know, his detractors were still around. They wanted the place torn down. But, but some people bought it, and they cleaned it up. And they give tours by appointment. Uh, and they're not supposed to charge anything, so it's a, it's a uh, volunteer thing. But I hear now they're trying to sell it. So if you if you want, you better go quick, I think. And, and you go ahead. It's 805-927-2690. And they give a tour. And they pretty much give the same tour, I noticed, because I've seen things on YouTube. And it's exact word for word to her wherever you go. So anyway, if you're a California landmark, does that mean that you're protected? You can't like somebody I can't buy so. it and like did uh, dismantle it. Who knows? That's what I think, but yeah. I, I don't know. So I would still go see it quick. I'm thinking of doing that, James. You need to go out there. All right, we'll take Laura. So anyway, what's number six? So number six is uh, a store, and it is one of my favorite stores to go into of all time. What is it? <laughs> and it's the Charlie Brown Farms. What's in that Little place? Rock, in Little Rock, uh, not Arkansas, <laughs> Little Rock, California, on the 138 in between the the, uh, the 14 and the 15. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? So the way we go to Las Vegas is we, we go up to 14, and then we cut Pear across Blossom on Highway. Pear Blossom Highway. And in the middle of that, there's a little town called Little Rock. And Little Rock has a... A little a, a store called Charlie Brown Farms, and it started out as a fruit stand in 1929. It sits aside, like I said, the Pear Blossom Highway, 138, in Little Rock, California. They have everything's world famous, or they have world famous date shakes, which you can't <laughs> usually get anymore for good reason. And then they have uh, the world's largest beef jerky that you can buy, and it's a slab <laughs> like this big. It, it, which is, I mean, it's like two foot by two foot or something. It's crazy. Um, you can see pictures on the internet. But the the fun thing about it is they have just everything you could imagine. There's a restaurant, 
boasting authentic style Texas barbecue. And then there is, it, 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 like the thing, like I said, I like about it most of all is that they'd sell a bunch of crazy crap from novelties to movie inspired items to a giant selection of candy, which definitely is my favorite, to huge dinosaur sculptures outside. And just anything you can think of, they have their candy sections separated in decades. You can go to 1950s, you can go to 1960s, you can go to 1970s, and you can go to 19, you know, all, all the decades. And then they have unique items from that, those decades, you know, like that cabbage really pa- cool. Cabbage Patch, or not, well, Cabbage Patch Kids little things, but Garbage Pail Kids stamps or, you know, sticker cards. And uh, 1950s, they have like Frisbee or Hula Hoop or, you know, whatever uh, thing they have. And 80s, they have an 80s trivia game. 90s, they have an 80s. So just interesting stuff. So that And that's just one part of it. They have a whole section on dolls, a whole section on toys. And this is like they started with something, and then they added on, and they added on, and they added on. It's like somebody's like Nitwit Ridge or something, except they probably got, <laughs> they got, they, they got, they got the permits. <laughs> except, so it's, it's everything's small in a sense, but it's big because all the built. there's nothing, there's like one thing that's kind of like a barn. And that has, believe it or not, they have like a bunch of Betty Boop stuff, a bunch of superhero stuff in there, and then a bunch of like gargoyles and dragons and like all kinds of rock stuff. And just, and then inside they have all kinds of movie paraphernalia, like, you know, little figurines of any kind of a movie you want. They have license plates with all the stuff. They have a bunch of that crap that has your names on it that you can buy, you know, trinket stuff. That's big time. They have. And that's the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. By far, you know, my favorite store. I we went. I go to to Adelanto or Victorville sometimes for work, and I'm like, I'm stopping there because up until a few years ago, it was the only other place that I ever knew of besides Disneyland that st- sold the Dole Whip too. So I would always stop and Ooh, get nice. that Dole Whip. It's a you know soft serve frozen yeah. yogurt, but it's a pineapple, pineapple. It's pineapple super good. orange ice cream, and they sell it at the uh, you know Disney at the um, you know uh, the Tiki Room. Yeah. But anyway, so they have what I mean. What else can you say about it? They have just every place, every wall, everything. It's like a TGA Fridays, but everything's for sale. So everything on the walls and all everything crazy, everything. Plus they have like a regular, like they have a whole room that sells soda, and you can buy any kind of soda you want. A whole room that has, uh, uh, like I said, toys, and then there's like a patio that you sit around, and the patio's got outdoor stuff that's like tall. You know, I think they got a Bob's Big Boy for some reason. And then you can buy Santa stuff. There's like a Christmas section. So everything's that's, for sale. It's Christmas all year round. All kinds of stuff. I'm telling you, it's got oh my gosh, more go stuff right now. Than, than you can imagine. But, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. And it's really kind of the best. I think it's the best roadside attraction store in California. I do. I think that. I can't think of a so, better one that has more stuff. Yeah. Even the stuff out there, uh, Peggy Sue's or whatever doesn't have that much stuff. You know, the one out there by the ghost town in that, Calico. Yeah, they just have every kind of thing. They got a head shop, I think, there, or at least head shop <laughs> items. Oh, kind of, dude, I'm telling you. Now they're probably extending I, that. I now. can tell you. Oh, yeah. I can tell you. I, I, mean, I can't even think of all the stuff. But they've got it, and uh, oh, and they opened up a fudge, uh, like a candy, they, like a fudge place, you know, like a little C's candy thing where they make homemade fudge and you know that kind of thing, all kinds of stuff. That is crazy because that really is the middle of nowhere. That it, is, it a- is the middle of nowhere. Little Rock is—I don't even know how much the, the population of the town is, but 
If you see the McDonald's, it's right next to it. Like we're across the street. Surprise, I got a McDonald's, so, really. So uh, that's uh, that's right. my number um, six. Six, and it is Charlie Brown Farms. That's, that's what it's called. Well, our number five pick is the California Institute of Abnormal Arts. And it's tucked away on the North Hollywood part of Burbank Boulevard. It's kind of surrounded by industrial sort of buildings. I think right next door they have a smog check. It's not too far from Lancashire and that big clown thing from Circus Liquors, you know the, the oh um, yeah, yeah. Um, and you'd miss the place driving by if it hadn't didn't have this wonderfully garish painted exterior, and it's a nightclub, a sideshow museum, and it hosts underground music acts, performance art, movie screenings, sideshow acts, and some burlesque, and the owners it's um, Carl Crew and Robert Ferguson. And they met when they're both working as apprentice in bombers <laughs> in, in, uh, at a mortuary in the 1980s. Oh. And they, I guess that wasn't their dream because they went and got a business together as film distribution company. But I think it was from the, you know, small time stuff. And, uh, but that went under. And so in that same building, they decided to throw underground parties. And it got pretty successful, and they kept doing it. It was like a secret speakeasy. But they eventually got closed down by the police because they had no permits or anything. And so they decided to go legit. So they got all the permits they needed, and they reopened. And at first it was a carnival theme. But now it's more like a creepy Chinatown. And they have, uh, it's called Chinatown East, which is funny because it is the East, but it's east of Chinatown. Oh, so, nice. So... Actually, I think it's west of Chinatown, come to think of it. But anyway, they call it Chinatown East. Um, and but, but a creepy Chinatown. And you pay at this giant sculpture head. It's like half skull, half flesh head. That's the ticket booth. And then you, after that, you enter this wonderful labyrinth. And mo a lot of it's lit by paper lanterns. All Chinese. They have Chinese um, characters and signs all in neon and things. And uh, there's an outdoor patio. That's where that stuff is. There's a stage. There's a movie screening area. They got a bar. And lots of meandering hallways with little alcoves here and there. And if that wasn't enough, the whole place is decorated, cluttered, and stuffed full of sideshow artifacts. They have a lot of vintage posters and, you know, banners. They got the world's smallest Freemason. They got a severed arm that... Uh, you're supposed to get your wishes. You can wish on it, and you get it within 24 hours. Nice. But you're cursed if you take a picture of it. They've got uh, Fiji Mermaid. they got a severed head of Sasquatch. All sorts of great stuff. Their main exhibit, though, is the corpse of Achille Chateauleau, which was a circus performer who supposedly requested that after his death, his body should be preserved and exhibited in his clown makeup and clown costume. And their story is that they leased it from the owners, and the owners kind of forgot about it, so now it's theirs. So anyway, it's Crazy. great. They have very weird acts and things, but it's definitely... It's been on TV shows. I think it's been on, um, what is it, Extreme Dating, where they had the people go there. Anyway, they call it the CIA, and it's worth a look. So go see it, people. All right, James, what's our next one? Well, number four... And uh, it's funny because I was, I was uh, you know, thinking about this, Frank, and, and uh, you know, as I was 
kind of just racking my brain of the stuff that I I've been to and like I, I you know I looked on the internet and, and I there was a a bunch of stuff that I thought man we need to go see yeah. you know these, that's one thing found, yeah this a is being a stuff. top ten there's a tons of so other this stuff. is random stuff that we have seen in our lifetime that uh, we love and enjoy and like the Charlie Brown Farms and and this next one is definitely kind of a one off because it's something I don't even know if you can do anymore because we did this before 9-11 and uh and i went to a boy scout uh camp that they allowed us to to stay at and it was when i say boy scout camp there wasn't there was no structure it was just a, a camp set aside that the boy scouts could use and it was at edwards air force base and so one of my favorite oddities is the the air force base test track rocket sled oh right and we just happened to have a uh the camp was right next to the old rocket sled and i believe it was the first one because they built two so the first one was built in 1949 and it was actually built by northrop and they were going to test some things you know in conjunction with the military and uh colonel john p stapp who's the famous guy if you look up he's the guy that actually tested the the rocket track on himself <laughs> so oh he did all the the, the uh, endurance tests and you see all the pictures if you ever see Crimey. a guy like on it looks like he's on like a makeshift railroad uh car uh but it's just a seat and they're you know with a big jet engine yeah. behind him and, and his face going crazy you know crazy flat or whatever that's so him huh? that's him and um it's not on wheels, you could probably imagine, because they fly off the track. So it's actually pads that they sit on and they curve around the rails so oh. that they won't fly off the track. And so there's no yeah. there's no moving wheels on it. It's these pads that they sit on and then they get enough power going. And, and uh, of course, the thing's wrapped around like a roller coaster or something so that the thing won't fly off. Anyways, they, they, uh, they started that. And what's so unique about it is it's cool enough that you have the track and you can walk alongside it and there's debris from the track and just just interesting because you're walking into basically space and and aviation history that's fun but then when you're young and your scoutmaster and dad don't care you can just go off in the middle of the night and find stuff and we found hidden tunnels underneath the oh. <laughs> underneath that were kind of submerged in water not submerged totally but and submerged is the wrong word but they had water probably up to our you know the mid-calf and they had all this old uh, cable that went from one place to the other, and we were walking all through there with headlamps and lights and stuff. Nice. And uh, we'd come wow. in, and it would be like, I mean, it, it, I who who knows? It could have been, you know, five hundred feet or a thousand feet, but it felt like a mile because you'd have to go slow, and there was debris in there, so you'd have to step over that. That's really cool. They had sort of a, a airplane graveyard where they had some bombers from World War II there, and you could crawl all through them, and they and it was cool because they you could get a sense of, you know, how people had to crawl to the tail gunner's seat and where you would go into the belly gunner and like wow. go all through there, and you could see all the old wiring and everything half torn apart. People had just ripped off pieces of souvenir and whatever, so it was a really unique place, and I, I just I remember just having a really good time and and uh with just a bunch of old you know the people's old junk <laughs> but i was glad i got to do it and who knows if you can do it like i said anymore or if they closed them up or they sealed them you know buried them or whatever but i got to do it so that's my number 
That's my number two, anyways. But number four on our list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well now is number three, and this one uh, is smack in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's located on the north side of Paiute Booth. Paiute Butte, excuse me. That's a, a stony hill. It's a group of with a lot of bunch of rocks all over it, an Antelope Valley, and from a distance, it looks like just a pile of huge rocks. But the, the man who built this was Howard Arden Edwards. And he was wandering into this area in the late 20s. And he was kind of mesmerized by the place, by the Joshua trees, the open spaces. And he fell in love with the buttes, especially. It seemed the perfect place to build you know, a home for his family and himself, he thought, and for his collection of Native American artifacts. Uh, so who was this guy? Well, Howard had been everything in his life. He'd been a professional daredevil. He'd been a self-taught artist and worked in that field. He'd been a teacher, a decorator, a playwright, a semi-pro wrestler, a clown, a set builder, and a professional whistler. <laughs> but what he mainly was was an enthusiast. So in 1928, he homesteaded the place, 160 acres of this butte, and he began to build his dream house. And his dream house, like all his ideas, was pretty odd. What he thought he should put out in the desert was this Tudor Revival style um, uh, I guess Swiss chalet sort of place and he built it between 28 and 1932 and it's a collection of there's the main building and there's outbuildings but it looks very cool but it's really weird out in the middle of the desert there and it's right into the side of the hill and the boulders are incorporated into the place and even when he first built it it was more like a museum than a home you know, it's like he had this in mind, even though he he didn't open it for business. Um, and it has all sorts of American Indian designs painted on the inside, up into the lumber, the beams and everything. And he got, he had some friends help build with him. And then his students at the school, because during the day he would drive from that place all the way into L.A. Uh, to Lincoln High School. And he would teach, and then he would bring his students there on weekends and have them help paint the stuff, because he taught art there. And the place is decorated, too, with a lot of different, uh, his artifacts, of course, but Indian blankets, Indian bowls, they got whale bones, and all sorts of things. Much of it Howard found uh, on his expeditions all through um, Antelope Valley and the California coast, but also on the islands of Catalina and San Clemente. And he was serious about these things, even though he's an amateur and kind of a hack. He would get descriptions and write them down and try to keep everything accurate. And he wrote papers and he wrote uh, books, one on the Indian trails, you know, in America. And uh, he would hold pageants out there, supposedly of Indian activity um, and Indian way of life. And the place is full of his paintings, too. And he was a good artist. That... He did in the plain air style of the turn of the century. It's sort of like impressionist paintings of America. Okay. And he's a good painter, even the self-taught or whatever. But in 1938, um, another enthusiast, Grace Oliver, she was hiking in the desert. And she just ran across the place. She didn't even know about it. And she fell in love with it and thought it was perfect for her collection, too. So she talked with him. And eventually she talked him into selling the place. Maybe Howard's wife was done. <laughs> Out there in the desert, I'm not he sure. He talked his wife into selling. Yes, so she bought it and she added her collection to it, and then she made it a museum. She opened the Antelope Valley Indian Museum, 
And, you know, she had it on and off open as much as she could. But decades later, I don't know if it got donated or sold, but it became a state park out there. And they've left it alone, which is cool, because it's more like a roadside attraction than a regular museum. It has the dioramas and it has the cases full of lots of stuff. Lots of pottery, Julia, uh, jewelry, Katina dolls and stuff. But it's all meandering weird hallways and passages between the boulders and on top of them. Some of them you have to climb up to get to certain places. It has 3,000 objects there between the two collections. But especially Howard's stuff, he had sort of imaginative stuff saying this is the jewelry and stuff that belonged to the princess <laughs> Indian and she, her lover was the fish warrior guy and it's like i don't know how she'd figure that stuff out but anyway um it's 30 miles east of lancaster but that's still in the middle of nowhere these days and it's open from 11 to 4 p.m on weekends unless you want a tour and the docent tours are given by appointments on thursdays so it's very cool i would head over there that's number three for us nice all right, number two is actually pretty well known, but it's my number, it's my favorite because of my lifelong obsession into actually getting there and seeing it. And because uh, I had seen it many times, but the place I'm talking about is one particular place there. And this is the Cabazon dinosaur. Oh. But most importantly, it's Mr. T. <laughs> oh, the T Rex. Mr. Rex. Which was crumbling down, and they could they didn't have it open. And I thought for my whole life, Pee Wee, you know, it's in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and him and uh, I think it's Mona <laughs> going up yeah. there and and talk about uh, her going to France and uh, and her yeah, and, and her dream, yeah. And everybody's got a big butt. <laughs> and uh, anyways, so not only the Cabazon dinosaur is a gem, but inside was my you know my mecca, and so. Uh, it just opened recently. They bought it. You could go into it, and I had been uh, by it several times, and that was the first time I realized that it could be open. And everybody was complaining about how much it cost. You know, oh my gosh, this is a tour strap or whatever. And I gladly paid whatever the hell it was, <laughs> and I got into that dinosaur. But let's talk about a little bit about it. Okay, it's it's in, in Cabazon, and it's off the ten on the way to uh, to Palm Springs. It, it was actually created by Claude K. Uh, Bebel, and that's actually, it started in the 1960s, and it's by, the he's uh, the main sculptor from Knott's Berry Farm. Let me stop us just for a second, because I'm going to shut this off, because it's going to keep doing that noise. Or maybe I should just call Mom, actually, because she called. Let's, let me call back quick, yeah. see what she wants. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it might be the Blood Moon. Let's go out for a second and see if the blood moon. We're having a little break here from the Cabazon to go see the blood moon. Yeah, the girl's still awake? Yeah, let's go see if there's a blood All right, we're back. We saw a partial eclipse out there. <coughs> so, James, continue with the 
<clears throat> ever saw dinosaurs. So like I said, it was created by uh, one of the sculptors that did Knott's Berry Farms uh, attractions, and his name was Claude K. Uh, Bevel. And it was started in the 1960s, but actually the the big Brachiosaurus or Brontosaurus, whatever whatever they wanted to call it back then, was was finished in 1975, and then they have a Tyrannosaurus Rex that they call Mr. Rex, and it was finished in 1986, and it was for as a you know an attraction for the Wheel Inn restaurant, and that was opened in 1958 and unfortunately closed in 2013. Uh, we have both eaten there, I think, right? You, Years you, ago, yeah. yeah. So we ate there, but it was always the the big dinosaur was always open, and there was yeah, the uh, there was a one. there was a, sh- a shop in there, and you you kind of enter through its belly, and it's had a a couple of different uh, um, incarnations. One of them was uh, just a shop that had sold uh, you know r- stuff that's associated with dinosaurs and whatnot, and then then it got turned into a creationist museum <laughs> somehow. Uh, somebody bought it, and there. So there was all a bunch of stuff. That's what it is now, isn't it? It is, but it's kind of interesting because they have a bunch of stuff. They have some original paintings, like the original paintings were of like Java Man and Cro Magnon Man, just stuff that was done in like that they knew about in the seventies. That's changed now, but it was as scientific as yeah. it could be in the in the seventies. And then somebody bought it and turned it into a creationist museum, and they had, you know, like. A bunch of stuff, uh, a bunch of paintings and like some dioramas where everything was in. Uh, everybody was in the, like Cro-Magnon Man was with the dinosaurs was with something else, a mammoth like, you know, impossible. <laughs> but anyways. yeah, even they have uh, the dinosaurs with jousting knights. Yes, the T-Rex. Section. If you go there, right there, there's a. So it's, it, I think it's a fun museum, you know, because it's just uh, just to be uh, able to go into the T-Rex. Yeah, yeah it's absurd, but. But like I said, they they bought it after that 2013, and they renovated the T Rex, and you can go up inside. And it wasn't sad to me, but it's actually a set, so it's not as huge as it is in the movie. Oh, in the mouth. It's yeah. in the move in the mouth. You actually it just has a tongue, and it's like a couple rows of seats that maybe you could sit two people in, and there's a cage. Around oh, that's it bigger than I thought. Yeah, it's 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 tight. It's tight though, and uh, maybe even one person could sit in there. Yeah, still, I would thought it would have nothing. But anyway, so you you can go in the mouth and you can look at it, and you could see the sunset if you wish. <laughs> I think about France fondly, but anyways, so the Cabazon Cabazon dinosaurs, uh, especially the mouth, especially the mouth of that T Rex is is uh, that's great. Is number two. Well, number one, this place is really hidden out in the outback. And in fact, I'm not sure I could get back to it anymore. Um, there are no maps to the place. There's no address. And I can't really find a mention of it even on the Internet. And that's the condor caves. And these are not ca- caves where condors roosted. These are caves with Native American art inside the pictographs. And, and one of them in particular has a condor on it. So it's... Way back when we did this, in my 20s, I had a book, or Edward and my friend had a book, or somebody had a book. And in this book, it described how to get to the caves, but it was a really meandering type thing. It wasn't like an exact map. Um, it, it sent you to the back country of Santa Barbara in the Santa Inez wilderness area to this camp there, which was Nera. And Nera you can drive to, but it's still way back. Um, 
you know, in the hills there. And from that campground, you headed out onto a main trail, then you turned off onto a side trail, then off of that into a wash, and then you look for these rock outcroppings, and that would guide you to somewhere else. You'd go up a dike, creek bed, etc. And But finally, we came to the caves. And it was in this valley. It was a rise in, in the valley, um, which was beautiful there. Very desolate, of course. And uh, sort of like Chaparral High Country. And the area that the caves are in is a bunch of sandstone rock formations. And the first cave is in this big sandstone, you know, white outcropping. And it's at the bottom of it. And you enter it. And it's the deepest, deeper of the two caves. It, and it is only seven feet deep on this thing. But still, it's very cool. You can stand up in it. And um, at the back of it is where the Chumash pictographs are. And there are all kinds of abstract designs, abstract to us anyway. And then there's some Indian bowls that uh, have been made by, uh, you know, abrasion into the side of the cave here and there on, you know, things that become level like a shelf there. And on the outside of the cave to the right, there's these little shallow cuts into the rock like steps, very primitive steps. And you can walk up it to the top. And up in the top is a scraggly old, old tree in this natural sort of pond that I think fills with water from condensation there. I don't know if the steps were by the Native Americans or what, but it's very cool. And from the vantage point there, you can see around this whole valley, and then you can see up um, to the other cave. And this is more like just like an overhang um, that's only in maybe three feet, but it's a long area along this cliff. And that's the place where the pictograph of the condor is. And um, really cool, this whole area. We spent the night there, uh, camped out by the caves, and then we hiked back the next morning. And it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime trip for me because I don't know if I lost the book or Edward did. He, he recently had a fire where all his books burned up. So, And I've tried to look at other books, go to Barnes & Noble, look on the Internet for books and stuff that have tell about this and, I don't, and probably that people are just trying to keep people from going there because of course there's vandalism and maybe it's a sacred site to the Chumash but if you can't uh, find the place there's another place that's sort of out of the way that's very cool too it has even better Chumash art and that's a lot easier to get to and that's the um, Chumash Painted Cave which is up on Route 154 out of Santa Barbara, uh, and then you go offshoot of that at Painted Cave Road. Yeah. And that you just park alongside of the road. There's about room for two cars. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. But not too many people go there at You got to just wait for somebody to leave, and then you just move in. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time, nobody's there. And then you go up these little stairs. It's about 20 feet away, and there's this big cave with, I, I think, it's probably the best example of Chumash art ever in the country and it has bars on the cave though so you can't go in because of obvious reasons it's so close but anyway that too is kind of out of the way so it kind of makes it as a hidden gem and so that's very cool but anyway that's that's um our top 10 tonight we hope you enjoyed it and that you might get inspired to go visit some of those or find your own or just get inspired to come back and listen to our next top 10 Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. For a 
a person who literally must have lived with music. A piano was built in England in 1886 that contained a bed, two cupboards, a writing desk, and a chest of drawers. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the nervous bulls. The national pastime of Spain is, of course, bullfighting, and the Spanish are known to go to great lengths to keep the sport as exciting as they can. A curious example of this devotion to the sport is the clock in the Tower Church of San Cernin. It's impossible to see the clock, even though it chimes the hours faithfully. Why a hidden clock? Because it regulates the local bullfights, and the townspeople thought the bulls would become nervous if they could see what time they were due to enter the ring. Believe it or not. <laughs> And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. Another story now from Strangely Enough. New England's Darkest Day. All of us have known dark days, but one of the most unusual dark days happened back in the spring of 1780, on May 19th to be exact. You can find references to it in many New England town histories that go back that far, and in old books on unusual physical happenings. It has never been completely explained, although there was probably some scientific and sensible explanation for it. The facts alone, however, are intriguing. You can imagine the terror of the citizens. They had no radios or other means of contacting the outside world to find out just how far the darkness had spread. May 19th dawned, as bright and as clear as usual, except that there appeared to be a haze in the southwest. This haze grew darker, and soon the whole sky was covered with a thick cloud, which was traveling northeast rapidly. It reached the Canadian border by mid-morning. Meanwhile, the eastern part of New York, as well as Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut were becoming darker. By one o'clock, some sections were so dark that white paper held a few inches from the eyes could not be seen. It was as dark as a starless night. Apprehension soon turned to panic. Schools were dismissed and lanterns and candles were lit in homes and along the streets. One New Hampshire town history reports that chickens and birds went to roost and that everything appeared through a kind of Egyptian darkness whatever an Egyptian darkness might be. Many people gathered in churches to pray and await what they assumed to be Judgment Day. However, in one city at least, business went on as usual thanks to a rugged individual. In Hartford, Connecticut, the state legislature was in session. By noon, the members were unable to even see each other. The meeting threatened to break up in complete panic, but one of the members arose and addressed the speaker. Mr. Speaker, this is either the day of judgment or it is not. If it is not, there is no need for adjourning. If it is, I desire to be found doing my duty. I move that candles be brought in and that we proceed to business. And so the session continued, with only a few leaving home in fear and trembling. That night, the darkness continued, and it was noted that in the light of lanterns, Everything seemed to have a faint greenish hue. A full moon due to rise at nine 
did not show up until 1 a.m., when it appeared high in the sky and blood red. Shortly afterwards, stars began to appear, and the following morning, the sun was bright as ever, after 14 hours of the strangest darkness ever to panic staunch New Englanders. Utah Phillips was a traveling folk singer, rail-riding hobo, activist, and self-proclaimed anarchist. But I first knew him as a storyteller. Listening in bed one night back in 1974 to the Dr. Demento radio show with my brothers. Utah was telling about the worst job he'd ever had. And for a long time, that bit was all I knew about him. But there was much more to the man than that, of course. Tonight, we're going to talk about Phillips a tiny bit and his work. We start now with the story I first heard back then, Moose Turd Pie. (laughs) Went down and got a job with the rural electrification in the Navajo Indian Reservation. Running electric power lines into all the Navajo outhouses. Was one of the first people to wire ahead for a reservation. Finally, I, I'll tell you about the worst job I ever had in my life. Worst job I ever had in my life was working for the, for the, uh, was it the Santa Fe? Yeah, it was the Santa Fe Railroad, south of Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, that's the old Mormon Muddy Mission, you see. It's way out in what the Navajos call the boonies, out in the desert. Now, the job was gandy dancing. Now, gandy dancing used to be in the old days. Gandy dancing was... Uh, when the Irish were building the railroad. Uh, Of course, the first transcontinental railroad was built by Irish laborers. And they used these long-handled shovels called uh, 
Irish banjos that were made by the Gandhi Shovel Company of Chicago. Now, the Irish laborer would take the wide end of the shovel when he could find it, and he would <laughs> jam it in under a rail or a tie, and he would climb out on the long handle, do a little jig step out there, and that would lever the tie up or the rail up, and you push gravel in underneath it and tamp it down, and that levels the roadbed. See, that's what Gandhi dancing is. Leveling the roadbed so the damn train doesn't fall off as it goes by, which is just a big drag for everybody. <laughs> now, they don't do Gandhi dancing the normal way anymore, see. Uh, like they did in the old days. Nowadays, they run three cars out on the line. They run a box car out there that's uh, a bunk car. You sleep in it. Got bunks in there 18 inches apart. And then you got a tool car with your tamping irons and your tongs and, and your double jack hammers and spikes and all of that equipment, see, to do the job. And then you got a cook car. I mean, there's no restaurants anyplace around, so you got a cook car. Pots and pans and a coal or wood-burning stove and a long table down the middle to eat at. Only thing they don't hire is a cook. That's because they're cheap. Saves them money. Rule is that in that crew, they're supposed to pick among their own members who's going to be the cook. Now, they don't try to do it sensibly, like draw lots or decide who the best cook is. What they do is they wait and find out who bitches and whines and pisses and moans the most about the cooking. And they say, all right, wise guy, you think you can do better, you get to be the cook. Well, that was me, see. <laughs> Old alligator mouth. The new man on the crew, and that was the worst food I'd ever had. I mean, it was dog bottom pie and pheasant sweat. <laughs> otter water. It comes out of an otter. It's a terrible, terrible stuff. Some people might think it's a delicacy, but I thought it was garp. So I complained, and they said, All right, wise guy, you get to be the cook. That made me mad, because I didn't want to cook. But I knew if anybody complained about my cooking, that they were going to have to cook. <laughs> Armed with that knowledge, I sallied forth over the muddy river. I was walking around among the cheat grass and bunch grass there, and I looked down, and there was just a hell of a big moose turd. <laughs> Biggest damn moose turd, that was a real steamer. I looked down at that meadow wafer and I said to myself, Self, I'm gonna bake up a big moose turd pie. Cause if anybody complains about my cooking, they're gonna have to cook. So I tipped that pasture pastry up on edge. I got my shit together, so to speak. And I started rolling it down toward the old cook car. I got it down there and leaned it up against the side, and I climbed up in the cook car, and I baked up a hell of a big pie shell. And I baked that moose turd in it as slick as you please. And I crimped the edges with my thumbs and laid strips of dough across it and garnished it with a sprig of parsley, a little paprika. It was beautiful. Poetry on a plate. <laughs> And I served it for dessert, waiting for the first hint of a complaint. Well, this giant dude come in, about five foot forty. I mean, he was big. Throwed himself down like a fool on the stool. Picked up his fork. Took a big bite of that moose turd pie. Well, he threw down his fork, and he let out a beller, and he yelled, My God, that's moose turd pie! <laughs> 
It's good, though. <laughs> Bruce Duncan Phillips changed his name to U. Utah Phillips when he started making money as a singer. It was to honor one of his favorite country singers, T. Texas Tyler. Years before this transformation, Bruce Phillips was born in 1935 in Cleveland to two labor organizers, Edwin Phillips and Francis Kant. Eventually, his parents were divorced, and Utah's mother remarried a Sid Cohen, the manager for the vaudeville house in Cleveland called the Hippodrome. Cohen adopted Utah when the boy was five, and the whole family moved out to Salt Lake City in 1947, where Cohen managed the Lyric Theater. So Utah was exposed to show business at a very early age. Somewhere along the way, he learned to play the ukulele and the guitar. When he was of age, Utah was drafted and spent three years overseas in Korea. He returned angry, disillusioned, and a little bit broken. He hit the bottle, and then he hit the road, riding the rails all over the country. Between odd jobs and handouts, he kept himself fed and kept traveling. And as he traveled, he sang and played music. He also met a lot of interesting people. All of them had things to teach and stories to tell, and songs, lots of songs. Let's hear Utah now tell a story about one of these companions. And after that, it's Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. Oh, it's a pure pleasure to be any place, especially here where you can hear the trains run through the town at night. Yeah. Never to be forgotten. Yeah. Old Hood River Blackie saw his share of starlight on the rails. I don't suppose you have any reason to know Hood River Blackie. I sure do. Probably saved my life. Good River Blackie's one of those old tramps that I like to sing about. And as I've told you, I mean tramp. A, a hobo works and wanders, a tramp dreams and wanders, a bum drinks and wanders. <laughs> All the difference in the world between them. Tramps are the intelligentsia of the traveling nation, conscientious malingerers, you might say. And Hood River Blackie was one of the best of them. He faded in and out of reality like so many of them do. I can hear him in his gruff way saying, what did reality ever do for anybody? <laughs> We've earned the right to make up as much of it as we can possibly get away with. Ha! You don't have to go to college to figure these things out. <coughs> we used to call it the Blackie Fade when he'd start talking there in Bologna Joe's in Portland, you know, the, the drop-in center. I'd work around that place. And Blackie would start talking and, and he would you, could, you didn't know when he was fading out of reality. Well, here's an example. He used to tramp with a guy named Fry and Pan Jack who settled out here in Springfield, Oregon. They were SPS men in those days, Port, uh, Spokane, Portland, Seattle, the triangle route. They got off in a division, according to Blackie, in, the, in uh, Wishram, down in the, in the Columbia Gorge. They were piping the stem, looking for a lump. You know what I mean? Panhandling for a, a handout. He spoke the old tramp parlance. It's like a different language. Blackie said... He importuned a woman through the screen door of her house uh, for a handout. She allowed that she would feed them, but they would have to work for it. She didn't understand the etiquette of it, I suppose. <laughs> but they were hungry and, and said that they would, so uh, she gave uh, Fry and Pan Jack a bucket of the ugliest green paint you've ever seen in your life. Said, you go out back and paint the porch and then put Blackie to work mowing the lawn. Half an hour later, they were done. And she was there with a fine lump, a handout, nicely wrapped up. And on the way out the gate, uh, Fry and Pan Jack turned to the lady and said, You know you've been very nice to us. 
I really hate to have to be the one to tell you that out back there, that's not a porch, it's a Maserati. The, uh, the blackie fade, the blackie fade. He could, <coughs> he could do that. Now, <laughs> now Hood River Blackie started, started tramping in 1942, which isn't old. But when he was a young man, he was taken under the wing of the great Tex Metters. Tex Metters tramped for 99 years, anybody knew about. He lived to be 112. But up to that point, 42, he had lived the whole history of the American Railway, which he freely shared with Hood River Blackie. And in later years, when Blackie became a Grand Duke in the Hobo Convention in Britt, Iowa, I'm a Grand Duke in that, he became known as the Keeper of Records. His self-appointed task was to seek out the elders in the traveling nation, gather up their songs, stories, poems, philosophies, and scatter them back around the country like leaves, you see. Well, Blackie passed away over here at 29 Palms, you know, across the, I guess over here in Southern California. Uh, my winter camp always was uh, Oroville before it got too dangerous, and that's why he was down in 29 Palms. They built a big railroad museum in Sacramento. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a beautiful affair, big one. And when they were building it, Hood River Blackie called them and said, where there's trains, there's tramps, you've got to have a tramp exhibit. So they hired him to build it. That's tramping. Well, in later years, you know, he had been uh, riding an old truck or a car. Uh, they call that a rubber tramp because the trains don't go up into the Apple Valleys, you know, in the Hood River country. He was apple knocking up there. That's how he got his moniker. So he wasn't using his frying pan or coffee pot or his bindle, what he would have called a balloon. He gave all of his stuff to the museum. When you come out of the main train room now, you'll see a little concrete alcove with an Erzatz hobo jungle in it and an electric log fire, <laughs> a life-size paper mache tramp with a holographic projection on its face so the lips move. And when you pick up the phone for the little museum wrap there, that's Hood River Blackie talking to you because he recorded that before he died, you see. Well, I went down there and stood in front of all his junk and after he had gone and made him up a song, which I will teach you. Um, I first met him, I was a young man, a bunch of us were hot-footing it for a Denver, Raya, Grand and Western freight train in Grand Junction, Colorado, trying to get up through the Moffat Tunnel down into Denver. <clears throat> and this fellow stopped me, an older man, I found out later it was Hood River Blackie, he saw I had a bunch of strings and ropes hanging off of my bedroll. So he said, you're going to get hooked on something, young fella, and drag considerable distance. So he made, we both missed the train as he had me unroll it and roll it up properly, you see. The rusty pot bubbles, the bottle goes round. Did you hear about Blackie flagged the westbound? The young ones drift off to get drunk in their dreams. The old men sip coffee and stare through the steam. Hood River, roll on, there's so much to remember. The old times are gone, Hood River, roll on. The fire's knocked down, the balloons are all packed. They're coughing and flapping along the still track. The green kid remembers the old man's advice He shakes out his bedroll and rolls it up nice Hood River, roll on There's so much to remember 
the old times are gone Hood River roll on The box rumbles up on a black cinder dray Some tumble inside, the others just wave Till scattered by smoke or the crunch of the shack But no one looks up and no one looks back Hood River roll on There's so much to remember The old times are gone Hood River roll on May your long apple valleys stay green through the fall And your magic white mountain watch over us all Lead your old apple knockers in out of the snow Let your rubber tramps ride where the trains never go Hood River roll on There's so much to remember The old times are gone Hood River roll on Hood River roll on There's so much to remember The old times are gone Hood River roll on Other folks do. How can I get a job when you're holding down too? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Oh, I went to a house and I knocked on the door. The lady said, Scram bum, you've been here before. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Yeah, I went to that house and I asked for some bread. The lady said, Scram bum, the baker is dead. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. There I am in Spookaloo, city of magic, city of life. Ensconced upon my front porch in broad daylight, long about noon, my rising time. Drinking something of a potable beverage, playing my guitar. Long after everybody else in the neighborhood has packed up their lunchbox and gone off down to Kaiser Aluminum to put in their shift. This enrages my neighbors. <laughs> One in particular across the road, little retired banker fella, been known to cannonball his rotundity across the road and stand there and publicly berate me for my sloth and indolence. Why don't you get a job, he says. Some of you heard that, I'll bet. Now me being hit to the Socratic method fires back a question. Why? <laughs> why, he says, taking aback. If you had a job, you could make three, four, five dollars an hour. I said, why, pursuing the same tack. Said, hell, you make three, four, five dollars an hour. You could have a savings account. Save up some of that money. I said, why? He said, well, you save up enough of that money, young fella. Pretty soon you never have to work another day in your life. Said, hell, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> oh, I like my boss. He's a good friend of mine. That's why I'm starving out on the bread line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Yeah, and I like Jim Hill. He's a good friend of mine. Say, that's why I'm booming down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. 
eventually stopped traveling and settled down for a while in Salt Lake City, where he worked in a warehouse. It was in Salt Lake that he met Amon Hennessy in front of a post office protesting war taxes. Hennessy was from the Catholic Worker Organization and had set up a house of hospitality for transients in Salt Lake. Phillips was impressed and fascinated by the man and ended up working for the hospitality house for eight years. During these years, Hennessy helped Utah to turn his life around and to work on his anger, and to find his peace. It's during this time also that Phillips got involved with the labor movement and joined the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world. Utah also had other jobs during this time, like being an archivist for the state. In 1968, he ran for the U.S. Senate, and he lost, but he did get 10,000 votes. After that, he lost his archivist job and was kind of blacklisted in the state because of his radical views. At this point, Utah decided to try his hand at becoming a professional performer. He began to sing folk music here and there, 
and eventually he was encouraged by singer Rosalie Sorrells to move to New York and try his luck. So he picked up and moved out to Saratoga Springs, New York, and started playing coffee houses and clubs in New York City. And he did pretty good. This led to 38 years of traveling the country, playing festivals, fundraisers, and rallies, as well as the clubs and the coffee houses. But let's let Utah himself talk a little bit about this. I was in New York after I, I left Utah uh, on, a, on a, a kind of blacklist. Um, and I was a fish out of water. I had to be told I was singing folk music. And I wound up in New York City, and there was a fellow there that was going to manage me and Rosalie Sorrells. We were assured he was the most honest manager in New York City. It took me a year to figure out that scrupulously honest in New York City was a jailable offense elsewhere. And, uh, and I, I bailed out on that, you know, when I realized that, um, I was, that I would no longer own what I do. I, I was a good wobbly. You need to own the means of your production. I would, know, I would have to abdicate most of the creative decisions to non-artists. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I decided that I would learn the trade. The trade is a fine, elegant, beautiful, very fruitful trade. In that trade, I can make a living and not a killing. And that was very important to me, to make a living and not a killing. To learn to, to live reasonably well, but um, I, uh, to, to, I, found, I found a world of folk music. I found folk music societies all over the country, little singer circles, little program here, Spirit of the Woods in Manistee, Michigan, what have you. And these were people who part of their pattern of social responsibility was being committed to making sure folk music happened in their community. Like you might work for United Fund or Muscular Dystrophy. And so I would come into town to do a concert as a partner in that effort. So the past 35 years I've been in this trade, I had no bosses. That's another part of it, no boss. Oh, make all the creative decisions. And then this wonderful, glorious movement, the most health, healthy, healthiest one that's happening in this country is organized folk music. People turning off those machines and getting together and sharing music and food as a holy activity. Singer circles, folk song societies, campouts, things like that. Take care of each other's kids, potlucks. It's, um, you, can, you find that town, town, city, city for city, all happening below the level of media notice. And that's where I happen. That's where I want to happen. Below the level of media notice, off of their radar, uh, and create this, this world that's apart. Uh, but which, as I say, if we're patient and continue to build and it, to do our work in place, we will, we will no longer be the margin. It will no longer be the alternative. Many of Utah Phillips' songs and stories have to do with the labor, civil liberties, and the power elite, and people down on their luck. But he also sung about the joy of life and freedom and railroads. He loved his railroads. Utah put out some albums during his life and small labels, and he collaborated with Sorrell and Righteous Babe on some records, one of which he was nominated for for an Emmy. But mostly he played live music in small venues. In his last years, he slowed down a little bit and lived in Nevada City with his fourth wife. He had a radio show there called Loafer's Glory. He also opened his own hospitality house in Grass Valley for the homeless. In 2007, he was forced to stop touring altogether because of heart trouble. On May 23, 2008, 
Utah Phillips drew his last breath at the age of 73. I never got to see the man perform live, which is a shame, but he can still be seen on clips on YouTube and be listened to on his recordings, which is something. Here's to the man, a singer who stood up for the working and not working man, Utah Phillips. 1933, the depths of the Great Depression, an army of homeless men roamed the land, stealing rides on the railroads. They were nomads who lived by no law but their own, and dedicated to their destruction was the railroad man who stood between them and the trains. Hang on for action adventure that roars like thunder. A hobo called A number one, and a railroading man named Shack meet in battle at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. A number one. A man who lives by his wits. I'm trusting you, kid. Cover for me. Hey, you come back here! He takes what he needs and goes where he wants, and always travels first class. Do confess in her. The Lord is my tabernacle. And his ship is filled with gold. Let's sail for the pearly gates. Hallelujah, brother! Day number one has been everywhere, but never on the number 19, Shack Strait, where nobody rides for free and lives. Next time I pick up an empty, I'm not going to have it burned. You will never let it happen again. Never! Shaq's weapons, a steel hammer, a length of chain, and he'll use them with pleasure if he catches any bum on his train. I did it. I rode your damn train. There's only one boy that's got the stuff to try me. You ain't even on the list. The king of the hobos travels by rail, and he always travels alone. This time, a punk kid named Cigarette is going along for the ride. Okay. He trapped that sets foot on my train. I'd hold him out and shake him to death like a snake. You ain't stopping at this hotel, kid. The stars at night, I put him there. My road, kid, and I don't give lessons and I don't take partners. Look, do exactly what I do. Nothing more. Don't like it. Just do it. The fast mail going through the junction at 710. 11 minutes. I'll be there at four. Not at yard speed, you won't. I won't be going yard speed. I'm going to highball. I'm not giving away another free ride. A number one loved the game, and he knew what had to be done. But the evil Shaq had a plan of his own. A number one performer on the 19th. But, but that's Shaq's train. Marcus. A number one! He makes it all the way to Portland. Okay, okay, I'll handle money. Tell the telegraph operator to let the boys down the line in on it. Tell him in your Word got up and down the line. The rebel was heading north on the 19. Some of the men bet on a number one. But most of the money is on Shaq. Shaq! Your flight's over here. And now the game begins. For a number one, it's the most dangerous ride of his life. For Shaq, it may be the last. Lee Marvin is A number one. Ernest Borgnine is Shaq. Face to face at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. Emperor of the North. It's not a place. It's a prize.
Captain's log, stardate 5470. The Enterprise is on routine patrol on the outer fringes of Federation territory, facing the intergalactic gulf. We are preparing to terminate the patrol. Nothing unusual has been encountered. Log concluded. Captain. What is it, Mr. Sulu? I'm picking up all kinds of powerful radiation at extreme detector range. What kind of radiations, Lieutenant? I don't know, sir. Some of it's identifiable, and the rest resembles nothing I've ever seen before in my readouts. Check them yourself. Lieutenant Sulu is quite correct, Captain. The concentration of violent energies is extraordinarily intense. It resembles no natural phenomenon. Heading, Mr. Sulu? 308, 6 degrees, 0, 0, 0. Range? Range, Mr. Sulu. Closing, Captain, but the disturbances are so violent, I can't say for certain. Two centers, possibly more, are involved. Very well. Change course to intercept. Lieutenant Uhura, sound yellow alert. Aye, Captain. Bridge to engineering. Engineering, Scott here, Captain. Scotty, we're heading for a violent energy disturbance of as yet unidentified origins. We may have to do some jumping about. Stand by. Ready back here, sir. Good. Bridge out. Range is still considerable, sir. Full power on the long-range sensors, Mr. Sulu. Wide screen, if possible. Working on it, sir. We're getting something. What the? Most remarkable. What is it? I've never seen a ship like that before. Or of that size. What have you got, Mr. Spock? There are two ships, Captain. They are apparently engaged in combat with one another, employing numerous weapons I cannot begin to describe. The forces involved... Each ship is putting out more destructive energy than a hundred ships the class of the Enterprise. Yet both ships, while badly scarred, appear to be intact. Each is at least 60 times our mass. Captain? Yes, Uhura. Sir, both ships are broadcasting on several frequencies. I can't decipher what they're saying. The universal translator doesn't recognize either language. The words are apparently directed at each other. Put it on the speakers, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. Keep it on the speaker. Spock, how are you coming with identification? Nothing in records yet, Captain. Still processing. Intruder, identify thyself. Laura, give me a reply frequency. Ready, Captain. This is Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Who are you? Where do you come from? What dost thou represent? The United Federation of Planets and its allied peoples. I repeat, who are you? I am the Red Worm, 333rd Super Dreadnought of my class, built by the Unified Dray peoples. There is nothing in my computer banks of a United Federation. Therefore, I must assume you are unneutral. For God's sake, Jim, confirm that we are neutral. It has been assumed, Doctor. Didn't you hear? Yes, but I don't want that thing to forget it. That's the biggest warship I ever saw. Except for the one it's fighting, of course. What ship? What ship? Identify yourself immediately! Laura, did we just do that? This is a different frequency, Captain. The call is coming from the other ship. Hmm. This is James Kirk, commanding the USS Enterprise, United Federation of Planets. We are... a neutral. Impossible! I, renderer of the next empire, have declared that all who are not aligned with me are friends of the unmentionable Dray people! Sorry, but we really are neutral. We have nothing to do with either the Dre peoples, as you call them, or the Nax Empire. 
Spock, what have you got on those two stellar civilizations? I've never heard of either of them. Working on it, Captain. You must listen to me! Or if you have faded out, Captain. They appear to have forgotten us already. They're fully occupied trying to destroy each other. And I have information on both groups. What is it, Spock? Where are they? They are no longer anywhere, Captain. According to mythological records, both races have been extinct in our galaxy for over 150,000 years. And know thou that I shall fight for another 150,000 or 150 million until the last remaining vestige of the blasphemous Naks are eliminated from existence. Where are your officers? Who am I speaking to? Which member of the crew? Crew? Officers? We of the Naks carry on for our builders and masters! No less we of the Drey, infidel. What do you make of that, Mr. Spock? I think there can be no doubt, Captain, as there is nothing in the records to indicate that either race was immortal. We must surmise that the crews of both ships have been dead for at least 150 millennia, and the war has been carried on all this time by the computer minds of these two ships. Incredible! Well put, Doctor. Both ships have apparently survived on their own initiative, continuing to carry out the last orders of their living masters, repairing themselves, modifying their own structure, constantly developing new weapons and new defenses each hunting for a crucial advantage over its opponent. Yet it seems they are evenly matched. All very interesting, Mr. Spock, but at the moment I'm more concerned about their present course. They keep traveling the direction they are now. They'll enter densely populated Federation space within a few days. They've elected to regard us as neutral, for now. They may not treat other Federation shipping, the Federation world, so politely. Uhura, give me dual broadcast frequency for both vessels. Ready, sir. Enterprise to combatants. Enterprise calling combatants. Listen, you two. You can reduce each other to masons if you want. But can't you do it somewhere else? You are headed... A challenge! You would dispute my position? No, no. Forget what I said. Spock, what are we going to do? These two are so involved with each other, they've lost the ability to trust anyone else. But we have to turn them somehow. Maybe if we could discover the reason behind the fighting, we could mediate for them, Jim. Hear the insults they threw at each other, Bones? After 150,000 years, Doctor, I doubt that either ship recalls what the war was originally fought over. That's usually the case with most wars which last more than a few months. Still, we have to do something. Jim, how about taking sides, joining up to help one ship defeat the other? Too risky, Bones. We know nothing of either the Dre peoples or the Nax Empire. I can't opt for one side blind. Besides, I doubt that the Enterprise would make one bit of difference for either side, considering the kind of energy weapons they're using. I doubt that our phases and photon torpedoes could so much as irritate either vessel. And it could get the Enterprise blown clear to the Magellanic Clouds. Just the Enterprise, maybe. But suppose we convince them we can call on several thousand ships the size of the Enterprise. A thought, Doctor. Except that we cannot call on several thousand ships. We cannot even call immediately on three or four. True, Spock. But they don't know that. It's worth a try, Bones. Uhura, sound red alert. <coughs> to the red worm of the Dre peoples. Unless you change your course, you will soon be set upon by thousands of warships of the United Federation of Peoples and will be destroyed. And renderer of the Nax Empire, 
Unless you break off and disengage from this sector, 10,000 cruisers of the UFP will appear to volatize the last remnant of your empire. Sacrilegious interloper! Enemy of its Imperial Majesty! I have been deceived! Captain, both ships are changing course. Mr. Sulu, emergency overdrive, warp 8. That was close, Captain. They both fired at our former position. With their minor batteries at right hand, However, they regard the threat seriously, it seems. Both vessels are currently in pursuit. Sulu? They're not closing, Captain. They're still too busy fighting each other, but we're not pulling away from them either. Good. I don't want to lose them. Yes. Kirk here. Go ahead, Mr. Scott. Captain, how long are we going to run at warp 8? We've got full deflector shields up too. We can't maintain this kind of shielding and this speed for too long. I know, Scotty. Hang together down there a while longer yet. We'll do what we can, Captain. Scott, uh... Well, Bones, we got them to change their course. We're headed away from Federation-inhabited worlds now. That still leaves the problem of convincing them to leave us alone. Well, I don't know what to suggest, Jim. I didn't get that far. Great. Mr. Spock? I don't know what to suggest either, Captain. At this point, the crucial issue appears to be whether or not... A trick! I see through you now. There is no such thing as a united Federation of planets. It was a low ploy of you, blasphemer to attempt to fool me into assuming a weaker tactical position. You are quick, quick, evil monster. Did you truly think to trick me, me, with such a feeble lie? This United Federation, this tiny fabrication masquerading as an inhabited ship is but a decoy manufactured in your own perverted factories. You will pay for that. Die, social misfit! They're slowing, Captain. We're pulling clear of them. Of course, Mr. Solo. Unchanged. They're still headed full speed away from Federation space. Well, what do you think of that? Did you hear, Jim? They've decided that the Enterprise is a trick. The Red Worm thinks we're a trick of the Renderer, and the Renderer believes we're a decoy cooked up by the Red Worm. Each computer has been battling the other for so long they can no longer trust anything. It is so in all extended wars. Truth is the first casualty last wound to heal. Mr. Sulu, set in a course for Starbase 14. Aye, sir. Detectors report both ships still heading out toward the Galactic Rim. And according to sensors, still fighting with each other as heavily as ever. It is sad, Captain. All that knowledge, all that power, devoted to continuing a war whose cause has long since been forgotten. What a waste. Sulu, reduce speed to walk back to five. There's one thing that bothers me, though, Captain. What's that, Lieutenant? What happens if one ship, either the Red Worm or the Renderer, finally does win? Won't it start hunting for someone else to fight? We threatened them both in the name of the Federation. Won't the winner come looking for us? I wouldn't worry, Lieutenant Uhura. Both vessels have been in a state of constant warfare for 150,000 of our years, without either side gaining a lethal advantage. I think it's safe to say that they will continue to remain evenly matched for another 150,000 years. Let's hope so, Mr. Spock. Let's hope so. I don't know about you, Uncle Frank, but I feel so inspired by Utah Phillips, I'm going to start malingering right now. But before that, Frank, what's our one last thing? Well, January has a lot of important birthdays. There are Mom's birthday on the 16th. Happy birthday, Mom. 
Happy birthday, Mom. Then there's our sister Gail with a birthday on the 14th. Cousin Marie with a birthday on the 15th. And our sister Kathleen on the 25th. And then there's Sherlock Holmes. The great character is supposed to have been born on January 6, 1854. In the sluice honor, we have a number from Baker Street, the musical, where we find Sherlock with his army of street kids. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. See you next month. See you next month. The Baker Street Division of the Metropolitan Detective Police Force stands all present and correct, sir. Gentlemen, I shall ask you to assist me in removing a packet of letters from the home of a woman in Serpentine Lane. With a pinch of batch of dear Johnny's out of Sam Doxy's lodgings. Got it? Leave it to us, gov. Leave it to us. Say the word and it's as good as done. It's done. What you need, gov? Look of a speed, gov. For if it's speed you need to do the deed, we'll do it on the run. Just name your fancy, although it may be chancy, we'll fill the bill without a fuss. And when no other blokes will touch it, not for money, nor for love, leave it to us, gov. Leave it to us. Your response is heartwarming. However, there will be no pinching involved. How do we get the letter sensor? You will merely toss a smoke rocket into the woman's bedroom window. She will assume there's a fire and rush without thinking to save her valued possessions. I shall attend to the rest. We send up the smoke and he does the pinching. Got it? You can depend, Gov, right to the end. Everything is safely in the bag. What have you got, Gov? That was the flood, Gov. And in a shot we'll do the lot, although we're not the ones to brag. Give us an inkling and in a twinkling It's done and there's nothing to discuss For if you can't do it yourself then by the blinking saints above Leave it to us, go! Leave it to us! Are they quite finished? And ready for further instruction, sir! You will receive the rest of your instructions at 10 o'clock this morning in Serpentine Lane. All troops report, four bells, Serpentine Lane. Got it? One moment. Watson, I've been meaning to speak to you about the Roylott affair. Did you send off the telegram as I told you to? Leave it to us, Gov. Leave it to us. Your every little wish is our command. Truer than true, Gov. We'll see you through, Gov. Give us a clue and we will do whatever you may have in hand. We'll do our ulcer and to back and closer. We'll give you satisfaction plus. If you need a helping hand to give a little extra shot, give us a go, go. We give satisfaction. So go. Put us into action. Who are you gonna trust to help you keep the peace? Surely not the London Metropolitan Police. Trust the irregulars. Trust the irregulars. Bellows, Nipper, Perkins, and McGibber, the Baker Street Mirror.